Coming up on Venture Voice. Tech companies like Facebook and Google had these rocket ship online ad businesses and publishers were chasing that instead of chasing, I think, building and monetizing audiences based on quality information, which was their strength. So it's kind of a classic disruption comes responding the wrong way. And I became very excited about the idea that just as Netflix and Spotify and everyone else was scaling subscription media, that was going to happen in news and, and I wanted to build it. This is Greg Gallant. Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm really excited to bring you this interview with Jessica Lesson, the founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of The Information. For any of you who aren't familiar, The Information has really emerged as one of the top online tech publications. Every tech executive I know reads it. The Information costs about $400 a year to subscribe to. It's pretty expensive, but is a business purchase that's kind of essential. Everybody in the tech world reads it now. And she's bootstrapped it. Started in 2013. It's now over 40 employees. Profitable. At a time when journalism is so challenged, it's, it's one of these rare stories where you see it actually working and someone actually starting a profitable company that's not relying on investors or kind of a flimsy business model to keep going. So I wanted to talk to Jessica to learn about how she did it and hear about her story as a CEO in addition to as a journalist. Now, I have a bit of an unfair advantage interviewing Jessica. We've known each other probably about 15 years now, since we were both in our mid-20s, back when she was a cub reporter at the Wall Street Journal, and I was a fledgling entrepreneur just starting the Shorty Awards and Muckrack, which are the two businesses I run now. So it was really a lot of fun to reflect over the years and talk about how things have played out. Hope you enjoy. Jessica, welcome to Venture Voice. Thanks for having me, Greg. I'm excited to be here. So tell me, how did you first get the journalism bug? I know a lot of people get it when they're in school. Is that how you got into it? I did um, in my early school days. So I was, I think, in middle school, and my English teacher happened to be in charge of the, the school newspaper, which was, you know, some Adobe Photoshop, Adobe Pages, something newsletter. And I think she needed a hand and I volunteered and never wanted to step away. So you were laying stuff out in, in Photoshop or InDesign or whatever that was? and Completely. And then I remember in high school, my, my high school had more of like a printing press style newspaper. It was in black and white. And I was like, you know, we got to get into color. This was, you know, bold new technology. And um, I had a fundraiser to fund our our move to color. So yeah, been in the guts of the business, I guess, too, as well as seen it from all sides. What was attractive about journalism in the news back in high school? What did you enjoy about it? Like not having to pick a field. You can learn about anything. I was very interested in science, but not like that I want to spend my whole career as a scientist. And so the idea that I could keep learning about so many subjects, and that would be my day job, was really exciting. I think I also liked, you know, this sort of permission to just go around and, and kind of learn things and be a little bit nosy and, you know, know what was going on at first my school and then, you know, ultimately I, my college and now, you know, much broader than that. So, yeah, I've just always really, really loved the business. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was the editor of my high school paper and I remember we printed hall passes that wasn't sanctioned by the school that we used to try to let the security guards let us walk around during class. What was like the biggest story that you broke in high school? You know, I'm going to have to dig through the archives about that one. I mean, I think it was a lot of like interviewing teachers. I remember interviewing my English teacher. My high school had this like amazing field hockey team that was really like always winning. And so I think there was, you know, there's a lot of interest in the field hockey team. By college, it became very much about sort of academics and the faculty. So at Harvard and at the Crimson, my beat was the faculty beat. And that, I always compare it to covering Congress because at universities, the professors, they kind of called the shots. They got to vote on what the curriculum would be and what happened to grades. And, and during my tenure, actually, the fate of 
the then president of Harvard, Larry Summers, who ended up leaving. And so that was an incredibly fun time because it was really like, you know, covering Congress. So I would, you know, different sources and different faculty members and different camps on different issues. And yeah, that was a great time, but learned a lot um, from reporting uh, from that experience. Did you piss any of these faculty members off with your coverage of them or rub anyone the wrong way? Yes, I think that's par for the course. I mean, I I was covering, there was this huge curricular review, you know, this once in a decade, what should be required in terms of general education. And I remember that the dean of the faculty, Dean Kirby, I'd sort of interview him almost like once a month that, you know, they would give the, the, the faculty beat reporter access to him. You know, he had a very particular view and faculty members had different views. And I think we I think we got some early details and leaks around some proposals and plans that probably weren't super helpful. I mean, the other thing that was going on was the launch of Facebook. You know, that was a story that mostly as an editor, I kind of followed from, you know, the days it arrived at Harvard and then universities more broadly. And I think that being and seeing the earliest stages of a trajectory of a technology company and its impact has certainly probably had the biggest impact. Now I run a tech publication, you know, um, and just been a, a very, very interesting experience that shaped my reporting a lot as well. I hadn't thought about that. So you've actually been covering Facebook since you were a student and Mark Zuckerberg was a student at the same school at the same time. Yeah. And I think it, I think really opened my eyes and the eyes of, you know, the reporters I've worked with on the positive and negatives of technology, right? So, and and, and I think, you know, to see sort of the power and that really young founders get early, you know, to really understand what issues are at play there. You know, there have been many consequences for better or worse that have manifested. But, you know, I think some people sometimes think, oh, we were there in the beginning and we've become cheerleaders for these companies. But I think it's quite sort of quite the opposite, right? I think we've had a much more rounded perspective on their impact. And also understanding, I think, how they how they grow, you know, to just very recently, the information we published a list of what we think are the 50 most promising early stage companies. And behind that is, I think, the fact that so many media outlets underestimate how quickly and important young companies can get very quickly. And so from day one, almost seven years into the information, you know, just really, you know, seeing and, and experiencing the ride of so many companies and not just Facebook, but Snap and Dropbox and Slack and all these other companies, you know, has been an advantage when it comes to staying ahead on what they're up to. Yeah, I remember I was in college uh, also when Facebook was just rolling out to the, a handful of schools with the .edu. And I, I imagine for people listening who are either younger or just weren't or older, like who weren't right at that spot, it's hard to remember Facebook without the news feed back when poking was one of the major functionalities. Like, what do you ever, when you first encountered Facebook, what struck you about it? And what, and what was it like to cover them back in college? So my husband likes to make fun of me for this. So my initial reaction was that I shouldn't be on it because I'm writing about it, or I think I was editing stories about it at that point. So I had this strange sort of, I, I don't know, that it would be some sort of conflict or something like that. But I obviously realize it's actually the opposite, right? If you don't understand something, if you don't use something, how are you going to, you know, kind of assess it? So, you know, back then it seemed like a local campus story. I mean, it wasn't like we all felt this thing was going to take over, but it was much more around the cultural phenomenon and behaviors and what you were seeing in terms of college students using technology. And, you know, there was wire hog, the music sort of piracy that, you know, all these different things. So it was very much a kind of student cultural kind of story, but it, you know, it escalated very quickly. I remember then like the Boston Globe paying a lot of attention, you know, there were a competition on it and, and all this stuff. So, you know, I think when I look back at that time too, it was an era where a lot of the press were sort of treating media, the founders as kind of these, these demigods to some degree, right? A lot of it was, oh, wow, look how amazing this is. And then, oh, look how much money they're raising. And look, you know, and it was sort of this didn't know quite quite to make of it, but everyone was kind of stunned by the growth and then ultimately the value being placed on these companies. And so, you know, ultimately when I ended up as a a tech reporter at the Wall Street Journal, one of the approaches I really tried to take was to step back from this sort of 
oh, look how amazing it is and really just try and understand what was happening at these companies and businesses. And it's hard to think back, but it was very different. You know, it was just sort of a bunch of founders on magazine covers, right? And that was sort of press coverage at the time. That's what made me interested to start this podcast back in 05 because you could, there was no media about how these businesses were built. It was just, here it is. There weren't all the VC blogs and there wasn't Twitter and, and that whole world that, that exists now. There was also like, um, well, there are a lot of attitudes, but I remember editors at the journal sort of saying, oh, don't write about Facebook. They'll never make any money. And there just wasn't an understanding of the, the ultimate business models that, that would propel these, these companies. Yeah, I want to dive more into that. But first, just backing up uh, to when you're in college, when you did write stories like those faculty stories, it must have been an awkward situation where you're potentially pissing off a bunch of deans and faculty, and yet you're a student still dependent on them giving you good grades since you want to, want to graduate and all that. Do you remember ever being kind of a little scared before publishing a story or, or having that tension really hit home? I'm sure I was. I mean, I'm still, I, I think big stories are still, you know, it, uh, always can be nerve wracking in terms of the impact. You know, I don't know how many of my direct professors I was interviewing, to be honest, you know, I mean, Harvard is just such a vast place. And so when I think of a lot of the people who were sort of ringleaders in that, it's a good setup for life, right? As a journalist, where you have to, you know, you separate different parts of your life and you take your job very seriously and you kind of have the, um, courage to kind of ask the tough question. I mean, one of the things, and, and I'm um, on the graduate board of the Crimson now and stay very close to the journalists there. You know, I think great college newspapers like the Crimson and many others really have established a very professional reputation and they have earned, for better or worse, the respect of sort of the administration. And and it's, it's a very kind of professional environment to this day. And I think this is the case again, you know, across the country. And I just also sincerely hope that even in times when parts of the news business are collapsing, you know, there are young college students who are, are really excited to join those newspapers and to have an impact because, uh, yeah, it's really an essential training ground. So how'd you get the gig at the uh, Wall Street Journal? It's a coveted job. I was an internship kind of junkie in college. So I spent each summer, you know, interning a different news outlet. I interned at the Associated Press, which was awesome. And then ultimately the Boston Globe, which was also awesome. And then after my senior year, the Wall Street Journal. And I had taken two economics courses and raised my hand for the economics beat for some insane reason. I spent that summer with like six textbooks right by my desk all day, but was lucky enough to get the internship and, and the journals internship program, which I, I just think is amazing and persists to this day. And, and we've modeled ours after it is they just throw you right in. You're not getting coffee, you're writing and you're getting published on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. I think after a summer of, of working hard covering the economy, I was, I just rose my hand for any opportunity, any beat I tried to keep extending my internship with coming up with more and more story ideas that would let them not disactivate or unactivate my key card. At the time, I think Ed Felsenthal, who's now the editor at Time, um, was overseeing a part of the journal where he wanted more technology coverage. And he wanted different type of technology coverage. This was in New York than what the West Coast was doing. The West Coast Bureau at the journal was covering Microsoft and IBM. And I guess IBM's based on the East Coast. But you know, the big tech companies, no one was really writing about startups and what was next. Ed asked me, I think I remember him asking me if I had a MySpace account, which I think was sort of a sign of if I was somewhat with it. Little does he know I was not that with it, but I did have a MySpace account. And so joined the journal in New York to kind of write about emerging technologies, online video, shopping, what kids were doing online. Really enjoyed that went on to cover BlackBerry when the iPhone was coming out. So that was another, I think, really important reporting milestone for me. And then I got to see what happens when a, a company that seems at the top of its game is completely blindsided um, and, um, you know, how quickly fortunes can change in technology. A few years later, moved out to San Francisco to cover 
internet companies that was mostly Google and Yahoo, which was just an incredible beat. So what year was that uh, that you did the move from covering it in New York to San Francisco? We were in 2008. I think I joined the journal in 05 and two to three years later. Yeah. I see. And I remember that's when I was getting to know you from uh, Subling Space and Dumbo from your uh, your husband, Sam, and got to see the early, early New York tech world. As an aside, you guys are in Dumbo when like, I mean, I was like, where are we going? Right. And now it's a tech epicenter and it's really cool to see. Yeah. I remember I used to hand people my card and they'd be like, Brooklyn, like, yeah. like what are you thinking? And then I'd say Dumbo and half the people didn't know what the acronym meant. It, it was just and such I, a- Yeah. I remember moving Sam in and just being like, are we sure? Like, <laughs> you know, but anyway, it's amazing now. It's a real testament to the growth. Yeah. Wow. To see. But what was that like uh, then going from New York to San Francisco? So the Wall Street Journal is based in New York. You're going to a bureau. I mean, for anyone that doesn't know, like, is the bureau an office? Is it how many people are in it? Did they have a coffee maker? Yes, we did. All of those things. So, and it's funny, our offices at the information are about a half a block away from that bureau. So we've, we've had the same local bar. About half our team used to work at the Wall Street Journal too. So there's a couple awkward encounters. But yeah, there was a wonderful group of probably around 20 or so reporters and editors, you know, who've all gone on to do great things. My sort of mentor at the time, it was a reporter named Kevin Delaney who went on to found Quartz and um, remains a sort of mentor to me in, in the business. And, you know, it was a bureau of, of fabulous reporters who, um, you know, some had covered, remember talking to one, um, Becky Buckman, who covered Microsoft's antitrust trial. And I was new on the Google beat. And even back then, I guess we've seen in recent months, the DOJ is sued Google. But back then, that was a line of fierce kind of reporting inquiry. Yeah, I mean, it was just a wonderful, wonderful newsroom where I learned a tremendous amount. And um, I moved out right when Microsoft was trying to buy Yahoo and Yahoo was on my beat. And so I also quickly became probably a, a mediocre M&A reporter and, uh, you know, got some late night phone calls from Carl Icahn, who was trying to launch Proxy Fight. And so, you know, it was what I love best about journalism, kind of the fast paced, you know, fairly competitive environment, but where you're writing about companies where there was tremendous interest. And I think it was also, particularly on those beats where I realized like tech isn't a tech story, tech is a business story, you know, and the audience that needs to know about these companies and wants to know is much broader than people who are living in the Bay Area. And that, you know, that's fueled me and and the information ever since. You must have felt like you're at the top spot in business journals, and I'm sure you could call anyone, Sam, with the Wall Street Journal and just have all the access you could want. Where did the bug come from to start your own company, and how did that manifest itself to you leaving the journal? I loved working at the journal, and I thought I was going to spend the rest of my career there. I I really did. Um, I think it is a fabulous publication, and and the people um, are are just top-notch. I think a couple things happened. One, I felt I started to feel that not just the journal, but basically every major news organization had the wrong strategy on multiple points. The main one was the business model. Even though, you know, the journal had a digital subscription, but circa 2010-2012, the name of the game was eyeballs and clicks, and publications like the journal and the times wanted traffic from reporters, not quality content. And so uh, eventually I, I moved to the Apple beat and covered Apple for a while. And I remember my editor saying, you know, patting me on the back for some live blog of some iPhone launch I did getting a lot of traffic. And, you know, that to me was like the worst way I could spend my time as a journalist. There are a thousand other live blogs. No one wants to know what I think of Phil Schiller's corny jokes. And there was so much other deep reporting I wanted to be doing. And what I saw is that, you know, tech companies like Facebook and Google had these rocket ship online ad businesses and publishers were chasing that instead of chasing, I think, building and monetizing, you know, audiences based on quality information, which was their strength. So it's kind of a classic disruption comes responding the wrong way. And I became very excited about the idea that, you know, just as Netflix and Spotify and everyone else was scaling subscription media, that was going to happen in news and and I wanted to build it. And I think the second thing was just how technology was covered. You know, as I mentioned, 
there was still this sense that that's what those reporters out on the West Coast do. I think tech is, covering tech is covering the future of business. You can't write about any industry, auto, retail, finance, without being deeply fluent in technology, the leaders in technology, the people who are going to change that. And so this idea of building a business publication for a broad audience, but that specialized in technology and disruption, to me, became you know, really essential if we're going to serve the next generation of business readership. What month and year was it that you like first had the idea like, oh, maybe I could start my own thing? And then what was the month and year where you quit your job? You know, it's all blur. I do remember. So I quit my job in July, I guess, of 2013. And I know this because I quit and then I got on a plane to go cover the Allen & Company conference in Sun Valley as a rogue reporter, you know, instead of with the journal. So it was that year, you know, I mean, it was the beginning of that year. It was into the spring of that year. The best I can describe it for all people who, you know, kind of find themselves at a similar crossroads is it went from being something I thought about on nights and weekends to something I just couldn't stop thinking about. And it was not an easy decision. I think people in my life who went through it often remind me that I now make it seem too easy because frankly, I've never looked back. And I think that's probably something all entrepreneurs relate to, right? You commit and you go for it and you, you can't imagine not doing it. But as I said, I, I loved the journal and I felt like, you know, there were some good ideas about how to adapt the place to the future, but it just seemed like those were going to be very challenging to pull off in a big news organization. How long was it between when you actually resolved to quit and you told your boss? I think I tried to quit once and then I sort of failed and then I, I sort of did it better, you know, a few days later. What was the failure? Like you walked in and you couldn't muster up the words? It was sort of, uh, oh, maybe. I mean, I, again, this was a really, what I do remember about this too is really all big publications have been going through a lot of change and innovation, right? So it wasn't like I was at a place that completely had the head in the sand. It was, uh, you know, at the time, um, Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher had been with the Wall Street or with News Corp as had a tech publication underneath and were likely leaving. And so there's a lot of conversation around, you know, whether I would take something like that over or, you know, whether my vision would fit, you know, there was just all sorts of things. But I think separate from that, you know, my, my desire to build something was bigger than just sort of sitting around and, and figuring out that kind of thing. And you know, to this day, I'm just thinking of like some of the people I actually spoke to at that time. And I, I think I spoke to one of them two weeks ago, you know, so I mean, these are people who are my icons in, in journalism, and it was a lot to kind of sort out. But as I said, you know, I it just really, really that feeling of, of kind of never looking back. Do you remember the reaction that your boss gave you when you, uh, when you told him or her? don't remember what my direct boss said. I do remember someone who was a few rungs or was sort of adjacent to my direct boss sending me the Yoda clip, like, do or do not, there is no try. So I'm sure this person doesn't even remember that. But I think everyone thought I was just completely nuts. But they weren't saying that to my face. They were, you know, making me feel like they had some confidence in me. And, and that was very meaningful. How did it feel going to the Allen Code conference? Like, could you get the as you said, as a newly rogue reporter, could you get the access you used to be able to get at the journal where some people just not talking to you because they figured you don't have the uh, the power of that brand behind you anymore? You know, the access is a funny thing. And the publication certainly is a factor, but I don't think it's the main factor. I think people talk with journalists they trust and frankly, who they find utility in talking to. People talk to journalists also because they want to know what the journalist is hearing. Or they want to influence something the journalist has heard that they may not think is totally accurate. Actually, before leaving the journal, I made a list of all the stories I was most proud of that I had reported over the past few years. Because I wanted to ask myself this question of, could I have done this journalism without the brand? I, it was 20 stories that, I, you know, that made the top hits for me. And there were two that I decided I, I could not have written. And, and they were both at the time, the New York Times was doing a lot of critical coverage of Apple's labor practices and Foxconn. And Tim Cook wanted a counter narrative out there. So he called up the Wall Street Journal and I was the person on the other end of the phone and, you know, gave a quote or two saying that it was meaningless or, or pushing some other initiative as a distraction, right? And 
And yeah, it's always great when Tim Cook calls you, but I wasn't in the game to just be on the other end of sort of receiving something they could have put out in a press release. And so what I concluded was that what had made me successful as a reporter was really was the team I had behind me too and the people. And so then it became a question of who could I hire? You know, what kind of team could I build by promising, you know, more freedom to do the important stories and not doing the clickbait traffic stories by building a business that over time by just our growth could pay reporters really well and offering people the chance to, you know, build something new. And so today our managing editor at the information was one of my old bosses at the Wall Street Journal. Another one of the senior editors was one of my colleagues in that San Francisco bureau. Our executive editor was another one of my colleagues from that very same bureau. So I think the thing I'm most proud of is is the team we've built. And I think that's really behind whatever success we've had. So walk me through, you You quit your job back in uh, in July 2013. You go to the Allen & Co. conference, you get back. Like, What are the steps between that day and when you were able to take your first paying subscriber and put up your website? So it's funny because I, I remember I signed it at Allen. I, you know, you start a company, you sign a piece of paper. It's very easy. You know, when I was like, is this it? Have we done this? And so then I had to hire. And you never hired before, right? Nope. And it sounds like at the journal, you didn't manage anyone either. So that was all brand new. Yeah, not direct. I had done a bunch of editing, but not directly manage people or get to directly manage people. I needed reporters. And so um, I went to the alumni network of the Harvard Crimson. I found a young reporter named Eric Newcomer, who was, was in Philadelphia, maybe at the Inquirer, convinced him to move to San Francisco. Um and then quickly hired Amir Fradi, who, who I mentioned, who's now our executive editor, who, when I had transitioned off covering Google at the journal, he had taken over for me, um, was, had covered Madoff and was just a great reporter. And we just started to write articles. I hired a reporter, Katie Benner, now at the New York Times as well. So I'm really proud of not just the team today, but the very early team. And my business plan, if you will, was write great stories, people will pay for them. It's still, by the way, my business plan. It's it's sort of that simple. And so we broke news about companies Apple acquired. We were some of the first to write about SoftBank's grand tech investing ambitions. I ultimately launched in December of that year. So it was about half a year of, we would sort of publish on a website, a WordPress blog until we launched, just so that we could collect email addresses to tell people when when they could pay us. And then launched in December, um, we had a big story uh, then about Andy Rubin, life after Android. So he had left Android, but no one really knew what he was up to. Turns out he was working on robots. Interestingly, many years later, we were first to report that he left Google amid a sexual harassment investigation. So we've, we've been on the Andy Rubin beat for a while. But yeah, we just kept growing the team, mostly with journalists in the beginning, but brought on a great engineer. We're basically churning out stories as fast as we could. And how did you think about the startup cost? Because you have this delta between when you're hiring people, when you launch the site, when you can get your first money through subscriptions, then it takes a while for the subscriptions to grow, I imagine, to the point that they'll cover payroll. How do you find the financing to cover that time? And then also, how long did you estimate that you need to get to break even? So we got to break even a little after two years, two and a half years. I bootstrapped the company until then. And, you know, I'm incredibly fortunate to have been able to do that. If I hadn't been able to, you know, I I would have pursued some kind of bootstrap-like funding. You know, I think the Delta, even though it took two years, which is pretty short, you know, the Delta was always small because our product was $400 a year, is $400 a year, except if you're 30 or under, and then it's $199 through our young professionals plan. So that was real revenue. And while we didn't have thousands of subscribers on day one, also, we also had very, very steady growth. And so we had meaningful revenue from very early on. Yeah, I remember being, uh, I was proud to be one of the first subscribers way back in the day. And I guess I would have just been over 30. So if you'd had that plan, I couldn't have benefited from it anyhow. We implemented it years later. So I don't think um, you would have benefited. We have a lot of readers who are are early in their careers and um, they're very meaningful to us. So what was day one like? I mean, there are probably a lot of people listening who have subscription products, be them news or otherwise, and 
I think we all fantasize when we launch a new product that we're going to make millions when we turn on the uh, the spigot for it. So what was day one like? I mean, I feel like day one was on the order of like 500 subscribers. I mean, it was in that ballpark. That's so pretty good. Yeah. I don't know that I had any expectations, to be honest. I mean, all along, I to this day, I care about growth rate. And I think as a subscription business, it's not about a magic number. But I think as a startup, right, are, are you getting better? If we can, we've managed to accelerate our growth rate as we've gotten bigger, right? And that, I think that, is, if anything, is what I use to kind of guide, are we on the right track? Are we on the wrong track? And the world of 2020 is is very different, um, the media world, than 2013. I mean, people thought we were crazy, right? You know, you have 500 readers. Well, we don't actually have 500 readers. We have plenty of people, you know, back then who could read and access content for free as well. But our philosophy is like, look, on day one, 500 people are like seeking out that content. They're paying for it. They're reading it. They're reading to the bottom. Those aren't just, you know, fake eyeballs on a homepage, right? And, you know, now we have many, many tens of thousands of subscribers and about, you know, half a million regular readers. I think for anyone considering a subscription business out there, right, you have to look at it through the lens. You have a different objective, right? And I think that's been hard for media. We obviously care about reach, which is very important in media. You want to have influence. But I think just, you know, patting yourself on the back because a lot of people saw the headline to your story is very different from who's reading it, who's engaging with it, who's commenting. And, you know, what we've seen over time is that you can do both. But we started in a place that I think many people um, felt was just kind of crazy. But the other thing about steady growth is it's steady growth, right? And and over time, right, the numbers do get quite big. And you, you kind of hinted at that chicken and the egg issue where, you know, now the information has a, a powerful reach of paid subscribers. So if you write something, it matters. But back when you had the 500 subscribers, maybe you had some more people get access or they could see the headlines. Did you have a lot of tension with that idea? Like, hey, we're going to break a good story or get this access. And then, oh, but only 500 people are going to see it versus we're competing with TechCrunch and 100,000 people are going to see it. I think 500 was day one. You know, by the end of the week one, it was more, you know, I mean, it grew. And also, we've always had different ways that people can sample content. So, the, you know, the readership is always bigger. I think what also happens is you have a big scoop. You've got dozens of news outlets citing it, right? And you're having impact. And so it is hard when you're doing a startup news property, but it, you have to ask, what what is... What are you in it for, right? Are you in it to have impact with the journalism, for it, journalism to make a difference? And I think it's far easier to do that in a subscription model. It's probably one of the only ways to really have impact. So, you know, the realities of the time, I think it was just, we got to publish again tomorrow. We got to publish tomorrow. What are we hearing? What are we hearing? But yeah, it was very clear to me and very important to me to hire people who were aligned with our vision, right? But the reality of, the internet, right, is that journalism is heard is heard around the world if it you know if it's of consequence and and it's also in the inboxes of a smaller group of people who are really going to engage and be influenced by it and follow up with more tips and all that. How do you balance the uh, the dual roles that you really had between being the CEO and the top editor, the top journalist? Because uh, obviously each one could be uh, more than a full time job in itself. You know, I'm always working on that. My latest idea right now is I'm actually going to try and divide my calendar into different days. I have no idea if this will work. If anyone has advice, as a startup founder, you're always wearing many hats. Quickly on the edit side, we, we've just brought on incredible um, edit leaders. You know, I mentioned, in addition to Martin Pierce, our managing editor in Amir, we have Wendy Pollack, who worked at the Wall Street Journal, Laura Mandaro from Forbes, Shai Oster, our Asia Bureau chief, and, and Nick Wingfield. So. You scale with great people who can do parts of the role way better than you can. And then I think on the business side, um, you know, even just in recent years, we've expanded the team as well. So we brought on um, our VP of marketing, Guillaume from Instacart and Netflix. So deep experience in subscription. And then just in the past few weeks, um, our head of brand partnerships from Time and Forbes. So all startup founders know, you I mean, you're basically the recruiter in chief at some point. So very much feel that way right now. When did you start building out the business team? It sounds like you started with the editorial and then business came later. You know, our, our first sort of key um, 
deputy on the business side is actually someone named Peter Schultz, who was one of our very first engineers. My first approach on it was just, you know, as a startup, you have these amazing people on the team who just help solve the next problem or the problem you don't even know you have. And Peter was that person. So he became, you know, not just an engineer, but a growth that he very data driven was a PE analyst prior to learning to code and becoming an engineer. So he really was our first growth hacker or grow, you know, and and for us, our most important channel on the business side has been email. There's just really good alignment between that and product. And so, you know, from very, very early on, it was sort of him and me. And now just gradually expanding the team, we brought on a great head of our corporate sales division, Erica Grijalva, going two years back. And so, yeah, it's been very gradual. Um, you know, it's amazing. All I got to say is when you get someone who's phenomenal, you know, the difference to the business is really amazing. I mean, there's always this tension in a news organization between church and state that on one hand, you're selling a sponsorship of an event to a big company or, you know, maybe a group subscription to a big company, and you're going to write a story that makes them look really bad. You know, it's hard at big companies, but at least there it's like, okay, well, there's the editor in chief and very separate, or at least traditionally, there was the head of the business, the publisher, and then five levels away was the journalist working on that who didn't care what the business side was doing. But here, like especially in the early days when you were just maybe under a dozen people and you might be personally working on that story and seeing the subscribers from that company come in or, or maybe seeing that company support, support the organ another way. How do you deal with that tension? Was there ever like a moment where you're like, what do I do about this? It's pretty straightforward to me, which is like you do the journalism. And I, I think, um, and you don't worry about, you know, if it's true and accurate and important, that's what you worry about. And I think also this is where being a subscription business also really matters because people aren't paying us $400 a year to read like puff pieces about you know, whatever they, they want accurate stuff. So they, if they feel like we're pulling our punches or holding back or anything that then we've lost the trust of our audience. And so I think all great publications find themselves, you have some hard conversations, but at the end of the day, you know, the readers who value you will respect sort of what you're doing, even if they don't disagree with it. And, and sort of who cares if, if someone's mad and cancels, you know, I mean, I, I think has that happened? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I don't even, I'm sure, you know, but I, I'm not sort of in there checking, right? Because it, it really is, is not where the focus is. I think also, though, you know, as a business now, I mean, our subscription revenue stream is by far and away our focus and what's most important, but we have a sponsorship and advertising business that, that we're ramping up quite quickly. And I think it's very easy to put guardrails around that, you know, We've had um, speakers pull out of conferences because they haven't liked coverage and they always think I'm going to be furious and I, I just couldn't care less. You know, I mean, it's just sort of not an issue. It's like too bad we didn't get the opportunity to interview them. But while that's the right thing to do, that there's no business tension with that either because it's very aligned. The business is earning the trust of our readers. I think it's a different calculation if 90% of your revenue comes from conferences, right? And so while I think multiple revenue streams are great, I think it's very important that the core of your business not be dependent on a handful of companies or people. Can you give me a sense of the scale now? How many employees do you have? Uh, we have around 40. I, we're, we've hired a bunch lately, so I'm not exactly sure. Um, you know, mostly uh, in the Bay Area and San Francisco, but we have had a um, four-person bureau in Hong Kong for a number of years. Also have reporters in London, D.C. New York is growing nicely for us, too. And L.A. and Seattle. Great. And how many subscribers? So we have tens of thousands, and that's all we kind of disclose. Um, growing very nicely, very much on track to where we thought it would have been in January, um, even despite COVID. We have more than a half a million sort of people who have given us their email to receive our content via newsletters and other, other products. You really blazed the trail with this idea of being a journalist who quits, starts their own subscription product. And as you said, it took six months to build a site. You had to hire an engineer. Now there are platforms like Substack and, and Ghost, or I think, what is it, Ghostery or whatever their competitor is. And it's become this trend now that lots of journalists are quitting their jobs 
and starting their own subscription newsletter, where some of it's public, some of it's private. What's your take on this trend? And do you think it's sustainable for dozens of journalists to do this? Or is it like, you know, you're Howard Schultz and you started the copy chain and there's not as much opportunity for other people to start it? I um, am fans and subscribers to many Substack newsletters and others. I see it as a little bit different, right? First, I mean, I, I think a reporter sort of sharing regular commentary on their views, right, is very different from building a newsroom um, and sort of a team of reporters. And right, and I think I enjoy the content a lot that these writers are putting out. It's a lot of commentary. I have a column. I love commentary. I think what the world needs more is like digging up cold, hard facts. And so I'm kind of old school in wishing that as many people as possible were kind of doing that. And yes, sharing their opinions. It doesn't have to be either or, but I want more people doing the sort of old school fact finding parts of journalism. I'd say the vast majority of these folks have the newsletter as a side hustle too. You know, it's part of their consulting. In some cases, they're venture capitalists. In other cases, they're freelancing for other publications. Um, I sort of like into it. When I left the journal, I would have probably started a sub stack if it was around to promote the information until we launched and then focused on the information. So I think it's wonderful that it exists in, from a sense that it's more great options for writers. No one gets into journalism to make a lot of money, but I want journalists to kind of be greedy in the sense of like, if they're delivering great content and great value, that should affect their compensation. And so I've enjoyed watching journalists kind of talk through the rationale for starting a newsletter by thinking about their earning power, because I think, again, just it's healthy for any business to really align, okay, what's the value of the journalism, the value of the business and having that go to someone directly. So I, I, I think there are a lot of positive trends within it. I don't think it's going to change the business of news, but I think it will create some great content and I will continue to subscribe. That's interesting. So for Jessica, the publisher, as opposed to Jessica, the journalist, you, you have to think now for your own reporters who work for you, like how much could they make if they started their own Substack, and how do I keep them incentivized to be at the information? I don't think of it that way. I mean, I think, and, and maybe some of our journalists will go off and do this, right? But I think it's, I view what a newsroom does and honestly what the experience of writing a personal newsletter is kind of apples to oranges. I think the journalists doing that realize it, but they may not realize sort of how different it is when you're all of a sudden an entrepreneur with, you know, demands of a certain cadence, or you're a reporter in a newsroom with all that brings, you know, in terms of going after a very high degree of difficulty articles versus writing with a purpose of just, you know, having a voice and, and sort of being in touch with your audience, right? I, I think there there'll be some overlap, but I do kind of see them as fairly distinct. And so, yeah, I'm all for journalists trying new things. I would never have my, my own experience, but I think they they just appeal to sort of different types of reporters. And I've seen what it's like to scale from, you know, in the hundreds of subscribers to thousands and tens of thousands and beyond. And on a sort of newsletter platform, if you're bringing your existing audience, that's going to be very limiting in terms of the readership and growth. If that matters to you, I mean, back to what I said earlier, that may not be what matters to someone, but I think compared to even what an information can offer in terms of reach, right, it's just, it's very, very different. One thing that's changed from when you were uh, at the journal, you mentioned that's Tim Cook, and he felt to get a counter narrative, he had to call the journal. Now he, of course, has a Twitter account with uh, over 10 million followers, as do many CEOs. And there's this idea that's floating around now with like, hey, do founders and CEOs need PR or to deal with journalists if they can just have their own following on social media? What's your take on that? What's your, you know, your thought about where journalism and PR kind of still matter in the realm of people being able to reach an audience direct? I think they matter a hell of a lot more in some ways because there's more to fact check out there, right? So, but it changes journalism very dramatically, right? It tilts the playing field very much in favor of the great journalists not the big name publications. Because, you know, even if you're a company, right, you don't need a place to get your message out. If you're working with a reporter on a story, you're really working with someone based on their 
perspective as a reporter, how they'll frame it. And so, you know, we see a ton of access from executives who aren't coming to us to reach the biggest eyeballs, but because they think our journalists are going to do a good job, whatever that means. And not, I mean, no one who knows the information will think that you come to us for a puff piece because we're business reporters and we're very tough. But I think sometimes you're trying to make a case around something and you want to present it in a certain way and you're looking for the reporters who you trust to do a fair and good job. And so, you know, for the bucket of stories that companies are actively looking to help with and work on, you know, I think it shifts the field towards sort of, they're looking for a certain type of reporter to work with, not a publication, because again, their Twitter accounts are far bigger. I think then though, there, you know, probably the vast majority of stories are ones that our team comes up with and, and maybe the company is involved or and maybe they aren't. And I still find that PR engages with that, right? If they take the journalists and the outlets seriously, you know, they're going to offer up some executives for their point of view as well. So I think it probably makes journalism, you're not going to the press to get things out there, but I think there's still, in, in the best cases, really healthy kind of cooperation and tension between, you know, we find that with the biggest companies we cover and that, and then there's coming out of a, a kind of desire or respect for working with the reporter. So I think that's a healthy trend. But you also need more, like you have CEOs just saying more things publicly. And that's also very important that you have journalists that are, are kind of fact-checking or pushing back on some of that. What does that actually look like behind the scene? These CEOs of now pretty big companies, like are they calling you up directly? Is it they're only there, you only talk when it's arranged by their PR team? How exactly do those communications work? It's across the board. I mean, wearing my many hats, I hear from a lot of CEOs all the time. Sometimes it's, oh, liked this article or hated this article or you forgot this, or sometimes it's a story to tell. So, and then there are others where we work through their comms teams. You know, I, I think it's really a mix. Yeah, particularly in this role, I, I a lot of things get escalated. So I, I probably spend a pretty decent amount of time talking to people who are have questions, have, have opinions that they want to share. I was writing about Airbnb and I wrote recently about someone who was really pushing back on a story about them and how we stood our ground and, and all of that. So it's not about influencing us, but the expectation now is that you can sort of say anything to anyone and in instant communication. And I think newsrooms feel that too. I remember from my own career, like going from that, that stage where you have like five or 10 employees, you know them all, you can deal with their concern to getting up to 40 is a huge struggle where you can't, you have to have layers of management and systems and all that. How have you dealt with that yourself? I think a lot of it is hiring great managers and, or trying to, you know, I haven't always gotten that right. You know, we've had turnover and, but I think the folks now have been with us for a really long time. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's learning to, to delegate and, and still where you can play a role. I mean, I, I'm still a journalist. I, still do reporting. I still help out and I don't do a ton of that, but I think it's important too to know where I can add the most value and where I can't. I'd say it's harder in a remote world. I'm sure many founders are experiencing this. We've done all sorts of things to kind of, I'm about to go into my weekly office hours, you know, and so over Zoom. So that's really important as well sort of five to 40 feels different. I don't know, 10 felt different, 20 felt different, and I'm sure 100 will feel very different. So I think really de being grateful more than ever for our team and, and um, for the other managers on the team. And I, I want to let you go soon because I do want to let you get to your weekly office hours. But first, what can we look forward to? Uh, do you plan on running this both as a CEO and kind of the top journalist, the top editorial person forever? Do you see yourself one day selling it or just being the CEO or just being the editor and leaving the other role to someone else? So I'm in it for the long haul. You know, I'm fortunate enough to own the company and and very much am just so excited about the opportunity. I mean, I, I think from the journalism perspective, we're just getting started and to the second part of my thesis right early on around just how essential it is that business journalism, you know, really be viewed through the lens of, of technology and, and its disruption. I, I think we're really at the beginning of seeing of the impact of that. So we're going to get bigger. We're, we're doing a lot of hiring right now. Um, continue to have always done. I think the opportunity is is vast. And yeah, we have great leader. I mean, I think Amir and Martin are really 
running our newsroom and editorial and really building out the business side as well. So I'm going to try and be useful. I think the fun part of of this role is that over time, you know, that can take many forms, but it's a really exciting time in media news. I mean, there are, are publications that haven't made the business model transition. And there's, unfortunately, we've, we've lost a lot of reporting jobs in, in this business over many, many, many years, not just this year. But I think it's in many ways the best time to be running a news organization because the demand for information and quality information is greater than ever. You know, our costs are our people. You know, it's just a wonderful time. So we'll keep our foot on the gas and look to be opportunistic in the years ahead. Yeah, well, as a subscriber and a fan, I can't wait to see what's uh, next. And thank you so much for taking the time and coming on Venture Voice. Thank you, Greg. That's all for my interview with Jessica. I hope this really inspires people out there who are building subscription business models, particularly in the journalism world. They're really powerful. I've seen it myself too. I loved how Jessica phrased it, just that power of consistent growth where there's not necessarily one year where things spike up. Not everything happens in the first day or the first week, but just over time, it really adds up and builds. I've seen that with my business, Muckrack, where we've now scaled to almost 100 employees without taking any venture funding. And there was never one day we woke up and we said, oh, now it's a big business. It's just slogging it away day after day and having that consistent growth. It just compounds, just like interest. Thanks for listening. If you could help me spread the word about this, that'd be great. One powerful way is to go to Apple Podcasts, leave a review. My last review is from Dave. Thanks, Dave. He wrote, The Original, Venture Voice was the original podcast interviewing entrepreneurs. I loved it when it started many years ago, and I'm so glad that Greg is picking it back up. Strongly recommend. Thanks, Dave. If you could join him, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Tweet about it, share it on on LinkedIn, on Instagram, wherever else you go. If you're on Twitter, Instagram, just tweet me. I'm simply at Gregory. I signed up early enough, just at Gregory. And let me know what you think. Until next time, keep building your businesses and I'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye.